Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, several, uh, several years ago, I went with a couple of guys from church on a, on a fishing trip on the North Carolina side of the, of the Smokies. And I love, I love fishing for wild trout. Um, like trout that God put in the stream, not trout that, that a truck put in the stream. They just, it, it's, you got to work harder to catch them. And they're, they're prettier fish, honestly, that, that, you know, they've been eating bugs and stuff their whole life and not eating stuff at the fish, the fish hatchery there. And, but in order to get to those fish, you got you to go to where the Department of Natural Resources can't stock the streams. And so that means you got to go to water that's not necessarily convenient. You got to work a little harder to get to those, to those streams. Well, this particular fishing trip we took was to a place called Hazel Creek. And to get to Hazel Creek, you got to park your vehicle on the southern side of, of Lake Fontana. Lake Fontana is the big lake that's just, uh, just beyond the Nantahala there, that, uh, uh, close to Robbinsville, North Carolina, up in Bryson City, up that way. And then you canoe across the lake, or if you've got a friend with a boat, that works too. Uh, but you've got to canoe across the lake, and then you've got to ditch your canoe, and then you've got to hike upstream for a few miles to get above a particular waterfall. And then you can fish for wild trout there in the crystal clear waters of Hazel Creek. And I'll tell you this, you've got to walk a long way to get back to civilization. Like you're going up and over the Smokies and, and you're ending up in the backwoods of Gatlinburg. And, and it's not just like a hop and a skip. It's a long way to get back to civilization. Well, we went that day and we got to the parking area and there's a nice lakeside campground there beside the parking area where we were going to spend the night before we got up early the next day to paddle across the lake. However, we got to the campsite and there was all this yellow caution tape that was spread around the campsite. Had all kinds of warning signs everywhere and the, and the signs all said that the campground was closed due to increased bear activity. That's an interesting statement. What exactly does increased mean? Does that mean when you wake up in the morning they're cooking breakfast at your campsite? I mean, that's increased activity. Does that mean that they caught one digging through the trash last week? You know, is, I don't know what increased is, right? I mean, there was increased bicycle presence on the road today. But hopefully that's not what they're talking about with the bears. The signs also warned that two of the three campgrounds that we were potentially going to stay in on the other side of the lake were also closed due to increased bear activity. Then it occurred to me that what if the bears were putting these signs up to make it easier to find us? <laughs> Needless to say, we had quite a dilemma on our hands. It was already getting late, so we decided to, we found a commercial campground a few miles down the road. We spent the night there. So at this commercial campground, there were motorhomes and there were people with yippy little dogs. And so we knew we were safe from the bears with all the Yorkies and Pomeranians guarding the place. We were safe. We got up the next morning, we had to make a decision. Do we cross the lake, become potential bear snacks, or do we go somewhere else? Well, a group of three guys, none of us were going to chicken out, right? Because who was going to be the one to back out? I'm like, you wuss, right? So we decided to be dumb and cross the lake. After all, these were black bears, much more manageable predators. It's not like North Carolina had grizzlies or anything like that. So three grown men, we could easily handle a bear, we agreed as long as one of us could get away and tell our families what happened, it was fine. 
Everything's fine. So for the next two days, we saw signs of bears, but we never actually saw a bear. Now, in our minds, because we had been warned ahead of time, there's increased bear activity, there's things on the ground that remind you of bears, I'll leave it at that. In our mind, we knew the bears were sitting in the woods just watching us, waiting for a, a sign of weakness, waiting for us to, waiting for us to turn, our, you know, turn our backs or, 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 loop, or make, a, make a poor judgment or something like that. We were totally convinced that there was a whole bunch of bears in the woods just waiting for us to let our guard down. Now, as far as I know, that's the closest I've ever come to being hunted. And probably it was more of a mental hunt than a physical hunt. I don't believe that there were any bears anywhere in the woods that day. In all likelihood, though, that little black bear in North Carolina would have been far more interested in the granola in my backpack than tangling with a full-grown man. When we open our Bibles, we find that Saul is also being hunted. However, the foe that's tracking down Saul here is a far more formidable hunter than anything living in the woods. English poet Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And in it, Thompson, who had a rough life, he described Jesus' relentless pursuit of him. Thompson said this, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, I visited hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me. The hound of heaven in hot pursuit. Tonight I want us to turn our attention to Acts chapter 9 as we consider the righteous pursuit of the hound of heaven who has picked up Saul's scent on the road to Damascus. If you've got your Bible open to Acts chapter 9, I would invite you to stand as I read these words. Acts chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Not Lord as in Savior, but Lord as in a term of respect here. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Father, I thank you for this conversion story, this man who was such a threat to the church that you found, you hunted down, you revealed yourself to him as a living Savior. And as a result, I think we can say the world has changed. And so, God, I thank you for, for being that pursuing God who never gives up. God, I pray that as we consider these words and look to apply them today, that you will help us, God, to surrender our lives to you and remember our call to be preachers of the gospel to others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, I, I met a brother for, for lunch this week, and during the course of that conversation, he shared his testimony with me, and one of the things he said is, I don't have a very exciting testimony. And, you know, we say that a lot. I don't have a very exciting testimony. And when we say that, we're, we're making a statement about, kind of the course of our lives prior to meeting Jesus. You know, we make in the statement that we probably grew up in a home where mom and dad were Christians or we didn't really get into the drugs and the drinking and all the other different sorts of opportunities that the flesh offers. And, you know, we, we think about it and say, you know, God didn't rescue me from those, from those gross and those rebellious and those, those, those evident and obvious sins. I think many of us may feel that way. We weren't such a rebel that you could smell the sulfur and brimstone in your nostrils before you came to the Lord. All, a lot of us have, have kind of boring testimonies that we weren't rescued from, from, the, uh, you know, from the, the, the heavy metal concert with a marijuana in our pockets. You know, we don't have that, that story. But it's important for us to remember that, that you don't have to be a murderer or a thief to miss the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to be a, a, a hellion. You don't have to have the smell of brimstone in your nostrils to miss the kingdom of heaven because the reality is this. A simple sprinkling of pride or a private dose of coveting will still do the trick. We look at Saul's testimony, though, and he's a bad guy. Uh, he has he he overseen the execution of Christians. He has broken families apart. He has taken men and arrested them and drugged them to prison. He has abused and harmed others. And his story is one of those remarkable testimonies of God's pursuit and man's surrender. What do we already know about Saul? Now, as Christians who've been in Sunday school, we've heard the stories, we've been exposed to the New Testament. We know a lot about Saul and what he tells us about himself, but if we're just going through the book of Acts, the truth of the matter is, is we don't know much about Saul 
up until this point. We know that Luke has given us a little bit of detail. We know he's a young man. He's not an old man in this, in this case. And yet in spite of his youth, he's risen to, to some level of authority in the ranks of the Pharisees, which tells us something about just his intellect. Again, if you want to know how smart Paul is, just read the book of Romans, and you'll recognize how, how smart the apostle Paul is. He's obviously no dummy. But we also understand that, that Saul is a bit of a, of a radical in today's vocabulary, we, we see radicals in various places. We hear about it in media, and, and we understand that Saul represents a, a somewhat of a radical in the, the midst of the Pharisees there. If you recall back to Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel was a Pharisee that was well-respected, somebody that people looked up to, his words carried weight. You know people like that. When, when somebody speaks, you say, you know, I, I really care about what so-and-so says. When they speak, their words carry weight. They're not empty words. They're words that, that matter. Maybe you've got somebody like that that you work with or somebody in your family. If you, you, know, you maybe have a parent that's still alive that when something's going on in your life, you call and you say, hey, what do you, what do you think? And those words carry weight. Gamaliel is one of those men where, whose words carry weight. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, we read these words. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, he's a teacher of the law. He says he's held in honor by all the people. He stood up and he gave orders to put the men, the apostles who were on trial. He tells them to put them outside for a little while. And he says to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. He goes on to give a history lesson about what others who, who had sort of been down the same road. And then he goes on in verse 38 to say this. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, is, uh, for if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God and the Bible actually says in Acts chapter 5 there that they took his advice. And so Gamaliel's advice was, if it's not of God, it's going to die out. We don't have to worry about this. Leave them alone. If it's not of God, then they're going to be exposed for the frauds that they are. And we don't have to worry about that. And the Bible says that, that what Gamaliel said, people generally listen to here. They took his advice, we're told. But we run into Saul. Saul didn't take Gamaliel's advice. Saul like, did the opposite of what Gamaliel said. He didn't just target a few. He wanted everybody. He was not just content with the church in Jerusalem. He wants to go on a road trip. He's taking the show on the road, going to Damascus to ravage the church. So Saul is doing the exact opposite of what Gamaliel said. He's not leaving the church alone. Instead, he's ravaging the church, and it's not just the church in Jerusalem. He's all the way to, on his way to Damascus, which is 150 or so miles up the road. And that's not a journey that you take on uh, easily. You don't hop in the car in Gamaliel's day. It's like a bicycle ride today. You know, that's how far Damascus was. Imagine doing that on foot. So that's what Saul did. Takes this road trip to Damascus. But it was a road trip that would forever change his life. As we look at this passage tonight, I want us to look at these three main characters we find in the story and work to understand their, bear, their, their significance in our life today. The first character that we see in this story, we will call him the, the hunted. 
If indeed we, we, we go with the theme of the poem that the hound of heaven is, is after him, you know, who's the hunted? Who's the bloodhound tracking down? Well, obviously, it's Saul. And there's no denying that Saul has a radical heart. He was committed to a worldview that had no room whatsoever in it for the way. And that's the term that the, church, uh, the church's early opponents used to describe them, that they are the people of the way. You know, it's one thing to say I, I disagree with them. I don't like what they stand for. I mean, we do that today, right? There's lots of different worldviews, lots of different opinions that we look at and we say, I disagree with that. I don't like what they stand for. I don't like the opinions that they hold. Saul, though, is way beyond the negative Facebook post about, about them, right? He's not going to go and say, these people who follow the way don't know what they're talking about. He's beyond just nagging him on Facebook. He has caused harm to the church in Jerusalem. But now he is seeking to hunt these Christians down wherever he can find them. This day, Saul's journey towards Damascus began with a very singular focus. To go to Damascus, to drag the Christians back to Jerusalem that they could stand trial. Little did he know, he was being pursued. The insight that we are given into the condition of Saul's heart is a powerful reminder that nobody is beyond the reach of the gospel. I think we lose sight of that today. Nobody is beyond the reach of the gospel. Saul hates the church. He hates people who follow Jesus. He wants to kill them. Now, just be honest, if you had a co-worker who said, oh, you go to church, I want to murder you. The evangelism conversation probably stops there, right? Uh, especially if they pull a gun out, right? Uh, okay, I'll leave you alone, right? In your mind, you might even think, I'm going to knock the dust off my feet, right? Make a middle note. Don't share the Jesus with that guy anymore. This is who Saul is. If anybody's uh, not coming to Christ, it's got to be the apostle, or it's got to be Saul, right? Well, we see that that's not true. Demographers and sociologists are telling us that we are now living in what is called a post-Christian age. We are Americans, and we understand that much of what we hold dear as Americans is, is only here because of the, the worldview of those who founded this nation. And, and though not all the founders were Christians, the way they saw the world was influenced by Christian faith and by biblical truth. And so many of the things that we hold dear, the liberties that we hold to be important, are only here because of the worldview of those who founded the nation. But as we think about this now that we live in this, what's called a post-Christian age, what this apparently means is that our civilization has evolved to the point that we no longer need strict religious observation. I took time this morning to, uh, to kind of step outside during church time, right? Because, you know, it's Sunday mornings. I, I'm pretty tied up on Sunday morning, generally speaking. And so in my neighborhood, I, I stepped out just to kind of listen to see what was going on in the neighborhood. And I heard the neighbors talking on the back porch just during church time. I don't think they were watching YouTube church because they were having a very lively discussion and it wasn't about anything that had to do with church. One neighbor was mowing the grass and, and there was activity and things. And I thought, well, I live in a neighborhood full of Seventh-day Adventists. Except the same noise goes on on Saturday morning. And so here we are in the buckle of the Bible belt and the relatively, you know, middle-class subdivision. And... Neighbors were all home, 
taking care of chores and doing this, that, and the other. And they were probably saying the same thing about me because they went to a church that canceled their morning services for evening. And they thought, what is that hypocrite doing out there in the front yard on a Sunday morning during church time? We live in this world today where we can be spiritual without being religious. Uh, we're encouraged to find the divine wherever we want to. As a matter of fact, if you talk to the average person on the street today, they'll probably say they believe in some sort of divine uh, significance. There aren't very many atheists in the world today. In fact, you can even sit at home now, courtesy of COVID and so many other factors, you can sit at home and you can watch whatever combination of church and sermon and teachers and preachers that you want. You can, if you don't like what you're hearing from one place, you can skip it and go to somewhere else. If you don't like the, 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 the fire and brimstone of this guy, you can listen to the health and wealth of this guy. And you can listen to whatever you want and, and, and c customize a, a religious expression that you're comfortable with. That's the world in which we live. And you don't have to do it on Sunday morning. I will tell you this, if there's anything that I regret about COVID-19 and the way we as a church responded to COVID-19 is I would have gotten rid of on-demand worship. If I could have go back and go to the Wayback Machine, live absolutely, make it available absolutely, but when church is over, it's gone. Because what we did is we got in the habit of oh, sleep late and click play at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock or watch it before bed at night. If I could do that, I would. But now we, we've created this monster. However, if we believe that somebody like Saul, who hates Christians, who murders Christians, if he can meet Jesus and be radically transformed, then I don't believe we can buy into the notion that our generation is a lost cause. If Saul can meet Jesus, then the lost person in your neighborhood can meet Jesus. The rebel in your workplace can meet Jesus. The alcoholic that you see on the street can meet Jesus. But we need to remember where our power is found. It's the church's job to proclaim the gospel. This is so important. What saved Saul that day? It wasn't anybody's political opinions or their social media activism. That's not what saved Saul that day. What saved Saul that day was an encounter with the risen Christ and an understanding of who Jesus was. We call that the gospel. That's what saved Saul that day. And today it's our responsibility to make sure that everyone knows that we have a living Savior who wants to rescue people from their sin. That is our sermon to preach. That must be our focus as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those other things that take our time and take our attention are just distractions that have taken us away from that which matters most. You know, today there's all kinds of enemies of the gospel. There are the overt enemies the people who see the gospel as a threat that must be eliminated, those like Saul. But then there are the covert enemies, the indifferent, the uncommitted, the unconcerned. Here's the thing. They're all saved the same way by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, exactly how Saul was saved. And if you're a Christian today, exactly how you came to know Jesus as well. The hunted needs Jesus. But then we find that there's a hunter involved. Nearing the end of the journey, Saul went from being the hunter to becoming the prey. He went from being the ravager to one who absolutely was ravaged. Everything that Saul thought he knew about himself got wrecked 
in that blinding flash of light on the road to Damascus because the one that he was persecuting was standing before him very much alive. And for Saul, who would become Paul, this encounter with the, with the risen Christ would totally shape how he understood the world going forward. He would go back and share his testimony, and he would recognize that seeing Jesus on that Damascus road was that seminal moment in his life that changed him and turned him into somebody brand new. And what we have to recognize here is that Jesus pursued him. Jesus saved him. Whenever you read Paul's testimonies, it's shared in other places. There's no denying the power of this moment in his life. I can think back in my own life, and I can think to the moment when I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And there was no denying the power of that moment when I professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've had highs and I've had lows, but there's no denying the power of that moment when I said yes to Christ. At the same time, there's no denying the role that Jesus has in all of our salvation. There's plenty of folks who think that salvation is all about us. It's all about our choice. Now, I would certainly affirm that we each have an individual choice to make when it comes to following Christ. But there's also no denying that Jesus pursues sinners. There's no denying that the hound of heaven has a nose for the lost. Jesus wants your neighbor to hear the gospel and be saved. At the very same time, it may very well be likely that you are the voice that is needed to point that neighbor the way that he should go. What we have here is this mysterious confluence of where the call of God in a lost person's life meets the presentation of the gospel from a follower of Christ, meets the choice to follow Jesus on the part of the sinner in need of salvation. The church today is arguing about what comes first. You hear that question being asked. You'll hear Christians fussing about if they're reformed or if they're not reformed. And this is the argument that they're having. They're arguing about what came first. Did Jesus call you and then you responded? They're, 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 they're having this argument. But instead of arguing about which comes first, I think it's better off if we just commit to doing our job. I think it's better if we just agree that, that we have a responsibility in this. There is no doubt that God has a job to do, that God is pursuing, that God pursues the Apostle Paul here. But we also have a responsibility here. We have a job to do. Whenever someone is saved, every single person who gets saved, all three of these things are present. God's call in their life, the preaching of the gospel, and the response of the sinner. None of us are off the hook. We're all part of this divine drama, and we know that Jesus is faithful to do his part. Why don't we be faithful to do ours? The third character in this story is the discipler. There may be no greater unsung hero in the Bible than Ananias of Damascus. This is not Ananias and Sapphira. We didn't get resurrected Ananias here. This is a different Ananias, just like it's a different Judas, right? He's gone. This is a different Judas that's mentioned here. We don't know anything about Ananias beyond his name and his location. It's like a soldier, his name and his serial number. That's all we've got. We don't know much about him other than where he is and what his name is. And he shows up in verse 10 of Acts chapter 9, and he disappears completely once verse 19 elapses. That's all we have of this unsung hero in the book of Acts. We have to assume he's probably responsible for baptizing Saul in verse 18. And we can likely assume, it's sheer speculation, however, that he's probably in the background of the story all the way through verse 25. But he falls off the pages of Scripture, literally there in verse 19. But that's the beauty of God's kingdom. 
God's kingdom is made up of scores and scores and scores of unsung heroes. Ananias wasn't an apostle. He wasn't one of those deacons that got mentioned there in Acts chapter 6. But what we do know about Ananias is that he was faithful. He was an obscure disciple who overcame fear and helped to disciple the apostle Paul. That's remarkable when you stop and think about it. Who baptized Billy Graham? I don't know either. I'm sure I could find it. I'm sure it's written down somewhere. Who led Charles Spurgeon to Christ? I don't know that either. Who pointed C.S. Lewis towards the gospel? I don't know those questions. But we understand that Billy Graham, somebody shared the gospel with him at some point in time. We understand that somebody preached Christ to Spurgeon. We understand that somebody shared the gospel with C.S. Lewis. And you could fill in the blank with whatever famous Christian preacher or teacher or theologian or author, whichever one you like, somebody somewhere along the way shared the gospel with that person who has made such an impact in your life. And most of the time, the person who shared the gospel with those people who've influenced you were obscure disciples whose names are lost to all of us. We don't know the names of these people, but you can't deny their influence. Church, listen to me. You cannot sell yourself short in the kingdom of God. You don't know the extent of your influence. You don't know the future of the people you invest in. As I sat here this morning, or this evening, and I look at the kids who were lined up here, I don't know what any of those kids are going to do. I don't know what any of their futures hold. We could ask them, what are you going to do when you grow up? We don't know. But we know that sitting here in this group of kids might be the next generation of missionaries, might be the next generation of preachers and apologists, might be the next generation of, of great thinkers who, who help people understand more and more about Christ. And by God's grace, we have an opportunity to pour out into them, to invest in them, to teach them about Jesus. And if one of those kids goes on to write a book that leads thousands to Christ, nobody's going to remember the pastor at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church or the Sunday school teacher at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. Nobody's going to remember that person. But you had a role in that life and in the trajectory of that life. Ananias He's named, but he's obscure. All he is is faithful. But he overcomes his fear, and he invests his life in the life of Saul, who would become Paul. But one thing you can be for certain of, the, of is this. If you don't invest anyone, you don't have to worry about it. If you don't pour out into anyone's life and point them to Christ, none of this really matters anyway does it you know this morning i was watching a little bit of the the iron man coverage um, i think the only thing harder than riding a bicycle for four hours is having somebody talk about riding a bicycle for four hours 
And, and the announcer got into the weeds of what it takes to, to train for an Ironman. And, and, and that blows my mind because I think, how do you have a life, you know, beyond this, beyond this bicycle? And the announcers were talking about the nutritional needs of the athletes. And they said that, uh, that an athlete could burn up to 10,000 calories during the race today. I mean, that's like a week's worth of calories that somebody was, was burning in, in one race. And, and they were making the point that, that these people who, who do this, that they don't just hop on the bike and magically finish. That, that they're thinking through every step of the way. They're, they're, they've got a plan in place for how they're going to fuel their bodies to, to burn through those 10,000 calories, how they're going to make sure that they get enough nutrition during the race so that they don't just pass out before they finish because they've got to refuel that, that engine as it goes. And so their point was that, that none of that just, just happens naturally. There has to be an intentional effort, an intentional participation on the, partic- on, on the part of the, the athlete. I think that's a good illustration for us today. Transformation like Saul's and like so many of us have experienced, it, it just doesn't happen. We don't wake up one morning where yesterday we weren't a Christian and today it just happened. I'm a Christian now. now. That's not how it works. There are moving parts. People must participate. Without Ananias, what happens to Saul? Without Ananias being faithful to go and, and disciple Saul, what happens? We don't know. We don't have a clue. And Ananias didn't just stumble over Saul one day and say, whoa, you're that guy who's here to kill me. That just doesn't happen. You see, God is working in and through this as well. I wonder today, where is the Lord working in your heart? Is there somebody that God is dealing with you about? Ananias clearly heard and responded. He had concerns. But God settled his heart, and he did exactly what he should do. He followed God. He was obedient. He was faithful. And all because of the obscure witness of this eight-verse disciple, I think we could say the world would never be the same. I wonder who in our lives today is that world changer that we need to invest in Maybe we need to share the gospel with somebody in our lives that, that we don't know the potential that's locked up inside. But what we do know is that we need to be faithful to obey and follow Jesus. Who's that person that God's laid on your heart today? Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for the image of that, that hound dog pursuing its pursuing its, its prey, looking for that, that one who has gotten away. Lord, we understand that for all of us who are in Christ, that, that you came after us, that you were working in our heart. I remember when I gave my life to Jesus that there was, it was clear you were, I was unsettled. There was a, there was a sense that, that something was amiss in my life, and the only thing that could settle that was trusting Christ. And so I thank you for the, the people who invested in me and, and poured their life into me that I could grow in my knowledge and understanding and my discipleship. Lord, I pray that 
you might help each of us, God, to understand how important it is that we as Christians are investing in the next generation. That may not even just mean youthfulness. That may mean next generation in terms of those who have um, not heard the gospel. Maybe it's our job to share a testimony, share a word with them to point them to Christ. Lord, we understand the truth of the matter is, is that our names may never be known on this side of eternity. But we're not looking for our fame and our renown. We're looking for your fame and for your glory. So God, as you pursue the lost and you work in their hearts, God, may we be faithful to find that place where you're moving and to be the one who shares that good word, that good news of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.